We all have times when we feel far from God. Some of us walked away, while others of us drifted without realizing it. How we got there doesn't matter. What matters is what we do next, because a step towards God is a step towards the home that you've been looking for. All right, well, hello. My name is Joshua Walters. I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus, one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us this weekend. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues or at an off-site campus, wherever in the world you happen to be. We are glad that you are along for the ride. I want to give a special shout out to our Somerville campus. Last weekend we had the privilege of partnering with them at our baptism celebration at IOP County Park. And I realize these kind of stories happen across all of our campuses, but it was so powerful uh, for me to hear firsthand the testimonies the ways that, that God is using uh, the people all across Seacoast Church. There were her children who had had a hand in leading parents to Christ, wives who had been used by God in leading husbands to Christ, grandmothers who had led entire families to Christ. And so as we, as we kick off the story, I just want to remind us that, man, we are part of a much bigger story. Uh, God is doing some incredible work. So let's just praise him for, uh, for that and the way that uh, he's using Somerville and each of our campuses. Just excited about that. Well, last week we kicked off a series called No Place Like Home, which is a three-week study through the story of the prodigal son. In case you're not familiar with it, it's found in Luke chapter 15. It's a father uh, that has two sons. One of his sons come to him, comes to him and says, essentially, Dad, I wish you were dead. Um, I would like my portion of the inheritance early. He takes the money and runs, go off, goes off to a foreign land where he squanders the money, spends it, it recklessly. There's a famine that comes on the land. He finds himself kind of at the end of his rope, bankrupt and, and busted and barefoot. He returns home to his father. Uh, his father forgives him, restores him into his family. Last week, we looked at this story through the lens of the son who, who ran, the one who's coined as the prodigal. And this week, we're going to read this story, same story, through the lens of the father, uh, that we might catch a glimpse of, of the father's heart and some of his characteristics and attribute that we would rest in and receive his love. But before we do that, why don't we take just a minute and pray. God, we thank you so much for this story. God, we're thankful for what an incredible picture it is uh, of your love for us. God, I pray that this morning that there would be hearts that are arrested by your spirit. God, that you would just, uh, you would move mightily in the house. God, I pray for me that you would speak through me, God, and that, uh, that I would be a vessel fully surrendered and used by you this morning to communicate uh, your word to your body. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Katie and I have a two-year-old named Asher, and he's gone through a number of different um, growth opportunities, as we'll call them. Um, a couple months ago, we moved into a new house, and it was about that time that Asher realized that he had the ability to uh, take all of his clothes off and uh, strip down, buck-naked, diaper and all. And uh, it's not just a, like, removing of clothes. It's a Houdini act where they're gone. I mean, you couldn't put them back on him if you wanted to. And uh, last week, Katie was cleaning up the house, and, you know, you can hear the kids playing in the background. And when it gets quiet, you know, all right, something's up. And so she, she walks around the corner, and Asher, you know, looking around the house, and sees that the front door is propped open a little bit. So she walks open and uh, opens the door, only to find that Asher had exercised his new trick and in doing so, snatched some Oreos. So being that she's a pastor's wife, I've trained her to, prior to discipline or dressing, capture these moments in the event that I need to use them. So I brought a picture for you to see. That's right. 
That's right. Bare cheeking it on the bricks on my front porch. Now, see, part of me thinks this is hilarious because I know that he got this behavior from his mother. She's uh, Oreos over clothes. I could see where it's a priority issue that we need to address. But most of me just gets angry by this. See, it's not childishness, it's foolishness. Childishness is a head issue in which information is needed to correct the problem. It was childish the first time. I said, Asher, we do not take our clothes off, especially while the new neighbors are over at the house. You understand, you know? At this point, it's foolishness. Because I've communicated, son, we don't do this. Where do you put the clothes anyway? What ha- you know, I've communicated not to do this, but it's foolishness. It's a heart issue because he's choosing to disobey. Now, see, as a two-year-old, it's easy for me to forgive his behavior. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. But at the end of the day, he's two. And as long as he lives in my house, I have the authority and the ability to implement a series of reminders on that bare bottom before I clothe it again. But my question, my question for us is what if he was 22 or, or 42? And God forbid at this point his, his struggle be one of public nudity. But what if over time, what if over time due to the influence of friends and pursuing the things of this world, foolishness has taken root in his heart and led him down a path that I know is going to lead to death? What if at this point my ability to discipline is long gone? Or in fact, what if it's a relationship that you were never in a seat to discipline to begin with? What if it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling or maybe one of your best friends? What if over time that the roommate of yours who just started dating this guy or this girl starts not coming home and you know where this is going? It's not going to be healthy. What if the busy season at work Uh, that was supposed to end at a certain point or just be a season has now become a lifestyle that's impacting your family and you don't know how to address it or to get back to where you once were. Or if your son and daughter, you realize that the kids that they're hanging out with, the clothes that they're wanting to wear, the music that they're listening to is gonna bring about a formula that's going to lead to death. When the loved ones in our lives become reckless and they themselves have become the prodigal, when they've turned from God and seem to be living on the run, What are we supposed to do? What would God have our role be in their lives? What we're going to see today is that pretty much everything you think you should do instinctively to love the prodigals in your life is wrong. I spent the majority of this week reading and rereading this parable, searching the scriptures, hoping that there were a few things that I could communicate to you that would help bring about the the change and healing and breakthrough in the life of, of your loved ones that may be living on the run. But the reality is what I was reminded of is that there is no prescription for the prodigal. We could talk with a hundred different people, a hundred different families that have prayed for and loved a hundred different prodigals, all of which have responded in obedience to the Lord and listened to what the Father would have them do. And if we were to bring them up here on stage and line them across the stage on one end, it would form a, a continuum where people would be accused of enabling their sin and thus perpetuating their behavior. And the other end would be accused of being hard-hearted because they drew a line in the sand and said, enough's enough. If the behavior does not end, then you have to go. See, the reality is the prescription for the prodigals in our lives isn't one that we write for them. The prescription for the prodigal is a truth that we must swallow in hopes of cultivating in us the heart of the Father, that in their rebellion and running and repenting and returning, that when they encounter us, they would see and experience the love of God. 
In fact, turning to Luke 15, that is the purpose of this parable, to communicate God's incredible love for us. See, parables all throughout Scripture weren't meant to uh, build our theology on or to develop our doctrine. They were meant to leave us with an impression, to mark us with one central truth about God's character or His kingdom. This parable in particular being to leave us with an impression of God's incredible love for the lost. So after having told the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in an open field and runs hard looking after the one only to scoop him up and carry him back on his shoulders... And then the parable of the lost coin where a woman with 10 coins loses one. She lights a lamp and sweeps her house searching carefully for that one coin until she finds it. Then goes after her friends to tell them and celebrate that what was lost has been found. We come to the the story of the prodigal son where we'll pick up this week and again read it through the lens of the father. That we might see how to cultivate his heart towards the prodigals in our lives. Let's read it together. It's there on the top of your outline sheets. It says this. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his census, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. When reading this parable through the lens of the Father, there are several observations that we can make that will help us us cultivate His uh, heart towards the loved ones in our lives that may be living on the run. The first of which is there on your outline sheets. When someone I love is on the run, I can wait expectantly. I can wait expectantly. What was the last thing that you waited expectantly on? You know, there's a big difference between just waiting and, and waiting expectantly. How many of you would agree with that? Last week I went to the DMV, and I could probably just end this story right there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was a Thursday afternoon, 12 o'clock. I had uh, Asher and Ari and Anna Jay with me. Thought, best case, this is going to be a 30-minute deal. Brother's got a dream, you know. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And two and a half hours later, we were leaving. Asher had been all up in everybody's driving record. A bunch of you realized that, this was, that it was me, and so I had to put on my best. I'm having a great experience at the DMV face, when in reality, I wanted to punch myself in the face. It was miserable. It was just awful. Two and a half hours in the DMV. On top of that, I had to get a new license with our new address on it, and so I had to take my picture, and after waiting two and a half hours, the lady says, uh-uh, sugar, you're going to want to take that one again. I'm like, you know, perfect, you know. 
thanks for waiting, and you're ugly. You know, we need to, <laughs> we need to work on that. It's just awful. All right, now contrast that feeling, whatever that is for you. You know that feeling. It was waiting, but it was waiting to get out of there. God, rescue me. You know, get me out of this place. Contrast that with ladies, say, waiting on an engagement ring. You've been dating him for a while. You're thinking he's the one. You've kind of walked in some jewelry stores and checked out some rings. You've caught him looking online a few times. Maybe walked in, him, walked in on him talking to your dad, and you're like, ah, this is it, you know. And now every time you go out to dinner, every time he picks you up, Every time you're going out, you're thinking like, <laughs> you know, could this be it? You know, waiting expectantly, not knowing how it's going to come or what he's going to do, but you're believing that something good is going to come from your waiting. Well, let's look at the passage there on your outline sheets. In verse 20, it says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, I don't get the impression that this was the kind of dad who sat on his rocking chair on the front porch. Uh, with his eyes fixed on the farthest horizon, waiting on his son to come home. You know, we don't know much about this dad. We don't know much about the son or how long he was gone. But what we do get the picture of in the context of this parable is that the father, in his incredible love, always has his eye on us. He's always looking, watching, waiting expectantly for us to return to him, for us to come home. As we're waiting expectantly on the prodigals in our lives, this looks like us being full of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 there on your outline sheet says this, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. See, we can wait expectantly in favorable circumstances, when the relationships, when the things in our lives are going well. But it's in the moments where you've been lied to and taken advantage of and betrayed that you have the opportunity uh, to evaluate and, and live in your circumstances or put your faith and trust in God. In the meantime, you can be certain and wait expectantly uh, that two things are going to happen. The first of which is that God is going to move mightily in your life. You can wait expectantly believing that God is going to move mightily in your life. I don't know that there could be a subject that's more sensitive, uh, that there could be a love that's more painful than waiting on a prodigal, than having a loved one in your life who's living on the run. But just as the father in this story was full of compassion, God, our heavenly father, is full of compassion. And as we, his children, cry out to him and pray for those in our lives that may be living on the run, he meets us there. He draws close to us. Look at this, Psalm 34, 18 there on your outline says it this way. The Lord is close. Say close. Close. If you're married, why don't you skew a little closer to your spouse? If you're single, why don't you skew a little closer to the person beside you? You can thank me. You can thank me later. <laughs> or not. Don't do that unless you want to. Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Man, Katie and I have walked through some incredibly painful seasons in our marriage. But as I look back on our story, I wouldn't rewrite a single one of them because I've walked through them with a better understanding of who God is. I have a testimony on my, on my lips of having encountered his power and presence in my life. You can wait expectantly, believing that God is gonna move mightily in your life. Secondly, you can wait expectantly, believing that God is going to move mightily in their life. The purpose of this parable is to communicate God's love for the lost. As much as you think you love and care for that prodigal in your life, that loved one that may be living on the run, you could be certain that God loves them more. The Bible tells us that he knit them together in, in their mother's womb, that he numbered the hairs on their head, that he formed and fashioned them in his image. 
You can be certain that he loves them, and he's not going to waste a situation or a circumstance. He's not going to waste a relationship or an opportunity at which he could draw them to himself, communicate his love, and make himself known in their lives. So here's a question for you. Is there anyone in your life that you've given up on? Anyone in your life that you've stopped waiting expectantly for? You know, maybe you've been separated for some time and you're just at this point kind of waiting on the papers to be signed. You've kind of thrown in the towel, believing that change could come about in their life. Or maybe it's a son or a daughter that, daughter that you've supported well into adulthood. They can't seem to hold a job. They continue to make bad decisions. And at this point, you're just kind of waiting on them to get it together and get on with life. Then you are waiting expectantly that God's going to bring about a breakthrough, that they're going to walk in and experience the abundant life that he came to offer. Whatever the case, it's easy for us to lose faith, to lose hope. But my encouragement to you is this. Don't allow this season of waiting uh, to be rooted in or based on your life experience. Don't allow it to be based on the character of the prodigal. Allow this season of waiting expectantly to be rooted in the character of God, believing that he is faithful and that he's going to come through. He's going to do a greater work than you could have ever asked or imagined. Somebody needs to get excited about that because that's just good preaching. (laughs) Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says it this way. And we know that in all things, say all all things. All things and the cheating spouse, and the child who's living on the run, and the friendship and relationship that's busted in all things. God works together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What if the reason that God has allowed you to be in their lives is so that you can model his love, and that through your faith you could be used by God to help bring about good in their lives? You can wait expectantly because God's going to move. Turn to your neighbor and say amen. Amen. All right. Secondly, when someone I love is on the run, number two, there on your outline sheets, I can love extravagantly. I can love extravagantly. Extravagantly literally means exceeding the limits of reason or necessity. Sounds like some of your driving habits. Exceeding the reason of, uh, exceeding the limits of reason or necessity, lacking in moderation, balance, or restraint, more than usual, necessary, or proper. I love that. It's a big word. We don't really use it much, but man, it captures God's heart for us. We will cultivate the heart of the Father towards the prodigals in our lives as we're willing to love others extravagantly. Verse 20 there on your outline goes on to say, filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son and threw his arms around him. How do you think you would have responded in this situation? Your son comes to you. Comes to you. He asks for a portion of his inheritance. You give it to him. He runs off to a foreign land, squanders it on wild living, only to come to the end of himself, coming home barefoot and broke, seemingly repentant. How does this conversation go? Have you rehearsed it, you know, several times in your mind to make sure that you communicate exactly how much pain he's caused you, exactly how much embarrassment he's brought on the family, exactly how much money that he's spent? See, the father responds differently, and the passage tells us that he was full of compassion, that he ran to his son. There seems to be a a gap between the way that the son saw himself and the way that the father saw his son. In the absence, uh, in his absence, the father was not angered by by his sin. He didn't allow his heart to become embittered because of his behavior. But in his love for him, he longed to be in relationship with him. So much so that when he saw him coming, he didn't see that problem. He didn't see that waste of money. He didn't see those years wasted. He said, there is my son. 
and full of compassion, he ran towards him. If I'm honest, I'm struggling to pull this off when my wife gets home later than she told me to. If she goes to run an errand or goes out with the girls and says, I'll be home by five, I'm thinking, okay, we'll see. And uh, about 5.20, I'm a little worried. By 5.30, I'm angry. By 5.45, I've already decided if I'm going to be passive or aggressive or passive-aggressive and exactly how I'm going to say it, you know? I just can't imagine the father in this situation. See, when you love extravagantly, you'll start to get some criticism. It'll turn heads. It will make people talk because it doesn't seem to make sense. It's when all of your friends say that you should divorce him or you should divorce her because of their behavior, and you say, no, I'm going to stick it out. I'm staying with them. It's when that good friend who always seems to take advantage of you, who never remembers your birthday, who, who never is looking out for you and always looking out for themselves and is walking down a path that leads to death and you feel like, gosh, it would just be easier for me to kind of let them walk, to create some distance in this relationship that you lean in closer and say, you know what, I'm gonna love him. I'm gonna love her. Friends don't treat each other this way. Some of you are thinking, well, let me tell you something. You have no idea what I've been through. You know, you, don't, you just don't understand the way they've treated me. You don't understand how painful and difficult this season has been. And to that, I would say you're exactly right. Man, loving the prodigals in our lives is incredibly sensitive. It's incredibly painful. And every story comes with its own intricacies and, and baggage and wounds. But for each of us, I would say that Jesus is our common ground. And if you look at Luke 23, verse 34, after he had been mocked and spit at and beaten and crucified, this is his prayer. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When the loved ones in our lives are living on the run, uh, when they seem to be going their own path that we know will lead to death, when they've wounded us and hurt us, we can have grace for them much more easily if we'll remember that they've been blinded by their sin and they know not what they do. They are walking in the darkness on a path that leads to death, and we can be certain that the wake of that is going to be pain and, and heartache in our lives. But we can have grace for them because they know not what they do. God has not called you to fix them. You cannot do that. But he has called you. He, had, he has positioned you in their lives that you might love them. That you might model his extravagant love as they walk down this path. That when they turn and encounter you, they would encounter him. So when someone I love is on the run, I can wait expectantly. I can love extravagantly. And lastly, I can restore generously. I can restore generously. Restoration is interesting to me because I feel like it's comparable to commissioning. Uh, it's something that we read about in Scripture. We would acknowledge it as a biblical practice, but seldom do we actually experience it in our culture. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity of going to a commissioning service for the well, which is our, our college ministry. There were eight or nine leaders there from the well that were present, that each of which felt called to go and start a different community group here in the Charleston area. So they shared what they felt called to and what they were going to do. Then all the other leaders in, their room, in the room uh, shared what it was they saw in them as a person and what they believed God was going to do, maybe in the supernatural or, or through their ministry. Then they all came together, laid hands on them, and prayed for them. And man, it was just a powerful service. It, it's going to serve, I'm certain, as almost a, a bookmark in the life of those leaders. And I'm confident that nearly each of them are going to finish strong because they've been sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. They've been, they've been affirmed. Well, for a lot of us, I think when we hear restoration, the word that we think is forgiveness. And there's no question that forgiveness is a part of restoration, but forgiveness without restoration is simply saying, I'm not going to hold what you did against you, but there's a good chance that things are never going to be the same between us. 
It takes an incredible amount of grace to love someone extravagantly, to walk through a process of restoration when you've been the one that's been taken advantage of and wounded and hurt. Our temptation is going to be to rely on the law to teach them something that only grace could accomplish. You know, that's the reason that God gave the Jews the law, that it would be a lens for them to see their lives up against, that they would see the error of their ways. With the prodigals in our life, our temptation is going to be to point out their sin, to show them where they've gone wrong. See, grace seems to posture itself as passive when in reality it is the power of God at work in and through us. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in his grace, he sent his son that we might have a relationship with him. You can be certain that as we extend grace to the prodigals in our lives, it's going to reveal their sin without us having to point it out. It puts the prodigal in a position of experiencing a loving God of grace versus a condemning God of guilt. Let's see how the father responds in verse 22 there on your outlines. It says this, uh, after his son repents, the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now it's important uh, to realize what actually happened here. The father said, bring the best robe. Okay, the best robe wasn't just reserved uh, for a special night, but a distinguished guest. Uh, they wanted their, their friends and servants and community to see we have a distinguished guest here, so much so that we're going to honor him and clothe him with our absolute best. Then the father said, put a ring on his finger. The ring was a symbol of, of ownership. It was essentially the father saying that everything that I have is yours. You're an heir once again. Then the father said, put sandals on his feet. Sandals were a symbol of sonship. When the son came home barefoot, uh, without any, any shoes on his feet, only slaves and hired men were barefoot. So the father said, quick, put some shoes on his feet. Then lastly, he said, bring the fattened calf. The fattened calf was set aside at birth and fed a special grain uh, so that they could fatten the calf up and, and kill it to have on a special day, on a, on a celebration of some kind. See, the father didn't restore cautiously or half-heartedly or conditionally. He knew his son. Seeing him come home and hearing of his repentance, the father knew that it was time to celebrate. He said, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. So what does this mean for us? When our son or daughter who, who has been gone their own way and struggles with alcohol comes home, seems like things might be better, but they ask for the car keys that we should just hand them over, you know, along with a family credit card and a key to the house so they can let themselves back in. Well, maybe, but I would think not. See, you know the prodigals in your life. And just as the father in this story knew the, the shake in his son's voice, knew the look in his eyes, you know those that you're living with that are on the run, and God wants you to be wise. It's important to remember that neither you nor your wisdom can change them, but God can do the impossible in their lives as you're willing to use, be used by him. If you're willing to wait expectantly, to love extravagantly, and to restore generously, whatever that might look like, in your situation. I want to introduce you to Frank and Sherry Claude. For the last 15 years, they've been walking a long, uh, difficult road, waiting on God to do the impossible and move mightily in the life of their son, Brandon. I'd love for you to hear their story.
we come from a, our family, we're all Christians, and um, it was just such a shock. And we were, we were just devastated. I mean, we were hurt, and we were scared. We, we just didn't prepare ourselves for this. We thought, well, we'll get him help, and we'll put him in a program, and then everything's gonna be fine. And that's all, you know, he's, we're not gonna go through this. He's not gonna, it's not gonna go any further. Everything's just gonna be okay. And, uh, it wasn't. Things did get worse. We finally had to just put him on the street. We had to sever our relationship. Not sever it, but we were trying to be, you know, tough. So people would tell us they'd see him on the streets begging for money. And, it just break our heart. We felt like terrible parents. Yeah. And we thought we had, you know, raised our son right, but then that, when things like this happen, you really second guess yourself. We had to actually attend classes uh, ourselves. CR was a wonderful program that Seacoast offers. And uh, we had to learn to, you know, you know, that we cannot fix our son. He has to do that, and the Lord has to help him. But the last time Brandon came home, he had been in jail for six months. So when he got out, it was like, okay, well, you know, you, you're not gonna be able to stay here, but you can come home until you get your life together or where you wanna go. You know, he had already made a plan of what he was gonna do. We've learned to accept small victories when they happen, and we just celebrate the small victories. Uh, and it's really one day at a time. Our son is in a great place now. He is actually studying theology at, uh, in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, he wants to be a youth pastor, or he wants to speak and to other youth about his, you know, path and uh, his testimony. Hey, Mom, hey, Dad. Uh, I just want to say that I love you. And I'm reading over this prodigal son, and it's just really, really hitting home. You know, it's uh, it's our story. You know, uh, I once was lost, but now I've found I've come home. You know, and uh, that's only by God's grace and mercy and by y'all's mercy, too. You know, I'm just thinking about when the son returns, how the father, you know, the father... He, he, he disgraced his father and his family and he left, went about, did all his business in shame and guilt. He came back, you know, and but his father was there. His father was there to run out and meet him. Dad, I can't explain how much you have been such a key to me even wanting to be alive. I mean, it's just, you portrayed it more than any man on this earth has portrayed. You never gave up on me. So many people gave up on me. So many people turned their back, but you were always there for me. I, I was gone for 10, 15 years. I was gone, but now I'm home. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for putting such great parents in my life. If it wasn't for you guys, I'd probably, you know, sad to say, I would be dead probably. So, and I know the Father's love because of you. And I just want to thank you so much for that and honor you guys with that. And 
I'm home now. I'm free. The chains are broken, and they will never be put back on me again. I just want to thank you so much for you, Derek. I pray many blessings over you. In Jesus' name, thank you, guys. Love you. Tell you what, we read a story like this and we get the impression that forgiveness and restoration is a one-time event. You know, that prodigal, that one that you love that's been living on the run comes home and you, you forgive them and you start over. When the reality is, if you've had a prodigal in your life, if there's a loved one in your life that's been living on the run, you know that oftentimes it's a process that takes place over years and looks like a continual coming home and forgiving and starting over. And the Claude story was no different. But see, for each of us, often it's in that coming home and starting over. It's in the messiness of that process that best resembles our faith journey as well. A struggle with sin, a desire to do what is right, and a desperate need for Jesus. As you're waiting, as, as you're loving the prodigals in your life, you can be certain that God loves the lost. You can be certain that he desires to use you to be a picture of his love all the while experiencing it while you wait. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this, uh, for this parable, for this picture of your incredible love for the lost. God, I'm thankful for every person here at this campus, across each of our campuses and online, God, that while we were still sinners, uh, God, you came after us, you pursued us, that we might live in a relationship with you. And God, I pray that today that you would, you would breathe a fresh sense of, of hope and life in us as we are praying for the prodigals in our lives. Certain, God, that you love them, that you could bring them to a place that in a moment their stories could change, that you would author in them one of, of life and hope. And so God, I just pray that you would use us. God, I pray for those that may be in the house uh, that are the prodigal in some way, in any area of their life where they may be living on the run. God, I pray that today as they turn to you, God, that they would encounter a, a God of grace. Meet us now, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.